survive. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. Sorry, uh, we're a little late this week. Uh, what can I say? Uh, life gets in the way sometimes, as I found out while watching this week's movie, Solaris. That is, <laughs> you know, as Andre Tarkovsky once said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. So. <laughs> well, anyway, this is a film culture and politics podcast, and there's perhaps no single event which epitomizes those three things together more than the Oscars folks, which uh, I feel like we talk about, or I should say you talk about a pretty embarrassing amount on this show. I was intrigued enough by some of your tweets uh, today to want to talk about them. So uh, I'm not really up on the Oscar stuff you're riffing on, Will, but uh, can can you uh, fill me and the listeners in? First of all, the Oscar race is heating up. <laughs> Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? The questions on everyone's mind in Tinseltown are who walks away with that gold little statue? You and I together have talked about the Oscars a fair amount, and you've always been sort of bemused that I get hung up on it every year in some way. And and I get hung up on the Oscars for the same reason. I think that you still sometimes watch Canadian leadership debates, even though you don't like them. It's like, for us, these are the moments where the thing that we care about more than anything becomes for an hour the thing that the rest of the world cares about, too. In my case, it's film. In your case, it's Canadian politics. It really does make sense, actually. I mean, in the same way that I had like a small p politics phase, you know, when I was like a teenager, maybe to some extent in my early 20s, you know, where I was just sort of into politics. I mean, you definitely had the same thing uh, vis-a-vis film. So you definitely watched the Oscars, you know, non-ironically as sort of, you know, a, t- a major cultural touchstone. And you're right. I absolutely am, you know, a pain pig still for watching just like, you know, I'm going to be watching like the Conservative Party of Canada leadership debates. Is it going to bring me any happiness? No, Uh, but I just I just can't quit that kind of thing. Even though, you know, I'm no longer under any illusions that there is anything actually interesting or even really significant about anything that I'm going to see. And I think the same is true of the Oscars for you. And in the same way that I think you're quite bemused and the listeners probably are that me or anyone else, you know, who isn't a conservative ideologue or whatever would, uh, you know, sit through an hour and a half of like Pierre Polyevre debating Jean Charest or whatever. I'm bemused by the fact that you just can't seem to quit the Oscars and are definitely going to be watching them and following them even as you uh hate them very clearly sometimes it's fun for me to go back and look at old billy crystal monologues because they're bad first of all they're not they're not funny but they are tokens from a monoculture that doesn't exist anymore in the in the in the age of polarization billy crystal has been rendered irrelevant in like 1997 there was a hegemonic consensus that billy crystal as the oscar host was the funniest thing in the goddamn damn world and you know you look at it now and it's 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 appalling and as i've been watching the oscars for my 33 years on this earth it's just been interesting to chart its progression to to chart as cinema itself becomes increasingly irrelevant that gets reflected in the oscars last year the oscars got under 10 million viewers an unthinkably low number for what was once like the Super Bowl of the arts. I mean, what sort of numbers did they used to do? The year that Titanic won, it got over 50 million viewers. Wow. Throughout the 90s, they would get consistently in the 40 to 50 million range. 
The year before last, they had a little over 20 million viewers. So it's trending downwards. And this year, apparently the network said to them, listen, the ratings have got so bad that you've got to cut a bunch of categories from the Oscars. You've got to cut editing, uh, costume design, music, oh all, all, all these things. So these will be announced at a ceremony that takes place right before the Oscars, right before the broadcast. And the winners will be said on the broadcast. But essentially, these disciplines, you know, editing, costumes, things that are like pretty central to the art of cinema have been officially designated second class categories. On some level, I get it. I mean, let's face it, the Oscars are pretty boring. It can be pretty boring to sit there and listen to, you know, somebody who's not famous do their speech. But on the other hand, like, what are we here for, right? We're, we're, we're here for, <laughs> we're here to see the art of cinema celebrated. I mean, if we're not doing that, we might as well go home. I mean, I said on this podcast a few weeks ago that I think they should just merge the Oscars with the Emmys. The Emmys are where the action is. That's what people care about. Movies and TV look exactly the same, and they're being released on the exact same streaming platform. So, like, who's fooling who at this point? Merge them together. And today, another step in the Oscars' inevitable slide towards irrelevancy occurred when the Academy announced its, its latest list of presenters. These are some of the people who will be presenting at the Oscars this year. DJ Khaled, Tony Hawk... That's right, Tony Hawk, uh, <laughs> Sean White, the uh, famous snowboarder, uh, Bill Murray. Okay, that's a name I know. That's a movie star if I ever saw one. <laughs> Bill goddamn Murray. Let's get some movie stars in here, folks. Can we get Gone with the Wind again, folks? Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> That's what Donald Trump said after the last Oscars. <laughs> and there was another news report that they're going to reunite the cast of Twilight as well on the Oscars. And it's like, for God's sake, what what are we doing here? You know, this isn't either you're having presenters who have nothing to do with the movies like Tony Hawk or you're reuniting the cast of a movie that was bad and that we all agree was bad. And which all the actors have like moved on from. Yeah. Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson are not like primarily known for their work on Twilight. Like, they both have a pretty distinguished career since. I'm just looking forward to the next list of presenters who they're going to announce. Like, can they have a live feed of Joe Exotic from prison, like, presenting Best Picture? Can they get Caroline Calloway to present an award? Can they get PewDiePie to present something? Let's get the young audience. Yeah, the two uh, the two frenemies from the Bad Art Friend uh, feature from a few months back. <laughs> But let me tell you about a filmmaker who was never honored by Oscar. Would you believe it? Mr. Andre Tarkovsky uh, never once went home with that little gold man. Which, which, by the way, you know, uh, we'll get to the movie, but it's always so funny. Every year you see lists that are like the best movies that were never nominated for best picture. Or can you believe they snubbed this or that? It's like, yeah. I, I, I can believe they snubbed it. Probably like 99.9% of the good movies that have ever been made didn't get an Oscar nomination. You didn't see Groucho Marx winning Best Actor. Well, and it's particularly the case, right, when the artists are not from Hollywood, right? I mean, foreign films, I think, are often snubbed by the Oscars or, or you know, relegated to, you know, the best foreign film category, which I think is 
really sort of American cultural uh, exceptionalism or, or chauvinism even in, in action, this kind of idea that the Oscars are kind of, you know, cinema's superlative event, but also they remain grounded in Hollywood because Hollywood, you know, has historically thought of itself as, you know, this is where film uh, happens. And so, you know, while, while we're going to acknowledge foreign films, we're going to give them their own category. Yeah, and each country gets to submit one movie for consideration. So, I don't know, let's say Italy happens to make Bicycle Thieves and Eight and a Half in the same year, uh, unfortunately. Or, okay, let's take this as an example. Uh, France made Hiroshima Mon Amour and The 400 Blows in the same year. Uh, which one do you pick? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, guys, you got to work it out. Meanwhile, we've got a queue a mile long of, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, Field of Dreams, and innumerable mediocrities besides. Actually, before we get to the movie, one more comment on that. I thought that Parasite winning Best Picture a couple of years ago was an interesting sign of the times because a foreign language film from South Korea winning Best Picture, I genuinely think would have been unthinkable before that. And I know people are going to say, well, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was nominated. Well, Life is Beautiful was nominated. Yes, they were nominated. They weren't going to win. They had a category called Best Foreign Film that they would win. That would be their honor. A Best Picture nomination was like a super special sticker that they got if they were extra good, but they weren't going to win. But Parasite winning was Hollywood acknowledging, we're not in the business of making serious movies anymore. We have uh, <laughs> deferred that to foreign countries and tech giants. We're, we're in the franchise business now. We have no industry to protect anymore. Well, this is a total dead horse at this point, but uh, this takes me back to when we talked about Parasite a few years ago on the show, and we went over all of those ridiculously bad takes on Parasite from predominantly uh, North American media people and critics, where it was clear that a lot of people really just like didn't get it. I thought it was super amusing that it ended up on one of those Obama lists of, you know, movies that you must see because, you know, that's what Obama does now. Now he's a sort of he's the new Roger Ebert. Yeah, he's the he's the guy given two thumbs up. But I remember scratching my brain at the time for, you know, kind of like what what Obama would would because, you know, he's not writing reviews. So, you know, all he does is include the thing on the list. But I was imagining if Obama was tasked with reviewing Parasite, what he might say. And I'm pretty sure in the spirit of a lot of those bad takes uh, on the movie from a few years ago, he'd probably say something like, you know, the film is a cautionary tale about, you know, what happens when societies don't support opportunity or something like that. <laughs> Anyway, on to the main subject of this episode, Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. Я Кельвин, психолог. Насколько я вижу, вы меня не ждали. Он понимает, что все будет зависеть от его первого сообщения со станции. Если увидите нечто необычное, не меня, не Сарториуса, старайтесь. Yes, we do have serious stuff to talk about on this episode. Um, this is, I believe, the second Tarkovsky film uh, we've done on the show. We did Ivan's Childhood, his, uh, his first film, uh, not too long ago, just a few months ago. This is certainly a more famous film. I think it's fair to say alongside Stalker, it's probably Tarkovsky's most famous film. It was also remade by Steven Soderbergh in, I guess, the early 2000s in a remake uh, I've never bothered to see. Correct me if I'm wrong, Will. Perhaps you've seen it, but I suspect uh, it's not any good. Uh, that's not what I've heard. I've heard uh, mixed things, but it has its defenders. So I would I would be interested in seeing it. You know, Soderbergh, he's a good filmmaker. Okay, fair enough. I like Soderbergh too. Well, I should add, in the process of... Uh, 
researching for this episode, I discovered that there's actually a third adaptation of Solaris, uh, which was another Soviet one, predating Tarkovsky's version. It's from 1968. I couldn't find out much about it, but I'm just entering uh, that into the record because I don't think uh, it's very well known. Uh, anyway, Solaris came out in 1972. It's a science fiction film. Uh, it's based on a novel of the same name by the Polish science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem. Now, I read that novel some years ago, and I suppose, broadly speaking, uh, they have uh, similar plots, uh, but they are very different, and I think to some extent should be treated as kind of distinctive artistic projects. Stanislaw Lem famously uh, did not like Tarkovsky's film. They were in communication a little bit around the time of its development, but eventually they had kind of irreconcilable differences. And I found a, a short interview with Lem uh, from the early 70s where he talks about the film and kind of his own frustrations around it. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, Lem being more interested in the science fiction elements and Tarkovsky, Lem charges, being more interested in the Earth. Now, we'll get into the plot of the movie in a second, but I think broadly speaking, it's fair to say that Stanislaw Lem's novel is an example of hard science fiction. It's very cerebral. It's very kind of sciencey. Lem is actually trying to kind of think through his own premises, you know, as if they're true rather than fantastical. Tarkovsky is much more interested in kind of the human soul and in the interior lives of his characters. And that's really what the film is about, even though it happens to have a kind of science fiction setting, and even though about two thirds of it take place in outer space. Well, it had been a long time since I'd seen this movie, so watching it again almost felt like watching it for the first time. I'm very happy to have had that experience. Uh, I found the viewing experience pretty overwhelming, as it so often is with Tarkovsky. To tell you the truth, for the first 15 minutes or so, I was having trouble finding finding my way into it. But then there's this very strange and beautiful section where we see uh, the character simply driving on various highways. This is right before he goes into outer space, uh, where the bulk of the movie takes place. Tarkovsky does certain things with the soundtrack and the color filters to render the space otherworldly. I don't want to over literalize the scene it, you know it's like it's almost it's almost as if like he's driving on this highway and you know there's a scene afterwards where we actually see him in transit in space but it's almost like he's blasting off into space in this highway if anyone has seen Jean-Luc Godard's film Alphaville Godard made a futuristic science fiction film by simply shooting in black and white in these new, very sterile, glass and steel office districts that were being erected around Paris in the 1960s, and it has some of that vibe to it. And in that scene, I kind of felt almost as if I was falling asleep or I was being hypnotized by the movie and being sent into dreamland. The rest of the movie feels uncannily like a dream to me. To some extent, it does in the way that Tarkovsky uses the camera. It's a lot of long takes, a lot of very slow, languid camera movements, uh, as well as the whole movie sort of takes place in a kind of interior space. The main character goes to this space station that is basically his own soul, or maybe it's his own memory. It's it's something. It's a mirror into himself. The movie has the logic of a dream where people you knew appear in new ways. Sometimes they appear very much unlike themselves, but the way they appear, they're made out of what you have inside you. You know, they're not them. They're your version of them. 
I think one more thing I would just say in starting is, you know, I can't avoid the fact that when I watch movies these days involving death and memory in some way, it's very difficult for me to not look at it through the lens of having lost both my parents in recent months. I don't think I need to say much more beyond that because there's not much to say about it, but it's just like having a pair of They Live glasses on that makes certain things resonate in ways that they didn't before. I mentioned Hiroshima Mon Amour earlier in this podcast. And that's a movie that I watched recently. And I found that movie very, very devastating in this context. Because in that movie, time is not a linear thing. Trauma is not a linear thing. It's set in Hiroshima, and the trauma of the A-bomb is woven into the fabric of the everyday in that movie. It's constantly, it's, it's like shards that are constantly hitting you. Now, this movie, Solaris, is about many things. It's about regret. It's about missing someone who isn't there. It's about how when the person is gone, what remains of them are the remnants that exist in your memory. And it's sort of a terrible feeling to know that no matter how vivid those memories are, they're not the whole person. They're not even the real person. They're this facsimile of the person that you've created. And to some extent, this facsimile that you've created is what you want them to be or what you need them to be. So not crescendoing to any main point, except to say that I found it a very, a very powerful and resonant film. Well, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, I've seen it a few times, but I had completely forgotten uh, how long the first act of uh, Solaris is. It's about 40 minutes long. So unlike in Lem's novel, where, you know, the first chapter of Lem's novel is just called Arrival. And so it actually begins with Chris arriving on the station. In Tarkovsky's film, you have about 40 minutes on Earth where not very much happens, you know, it very in very typical Tarkovsky fashion, uh, you have lots of cryptic and quite sort of blissful uh, shots of sort of reeds in the water and characters standing in nature. You also have a little bit of exposition, which uh, from what I can remember in the book doesn't appear until later. You have this uh, remarkable scene where Burton, who's this test pilot who's visited Solaris uh, years earlier, is driving down the highway. This was the scene that Will mentioned. That goes on for something like five or six minutes. And uh, yeah, you used the word hypnotizing. I wrote in my notes for that scene, I just wrote Tarkovsky as a hypnotist. Uh, so we learn from this early exposition, uh, you know, we see Chris, who's uh, the film's main character, and his parents uh, watching an old film reel. And in the film reel, they see footage of a conference from, it seems, several decades earlier in which this test pilot, Burton, describes his experience during a flight over Solaris. Now, Solaris is a remote planet uh, that consists of a kind of giant ocean that appears to be, uh, it appears to possess some kind of consciousness. It appears to be an organism of some kind, although people aren't really sure uh, what it is. But in Burton's description, you know, the windows of his craft are covered in a kind of fog. And then he reports seeing a child who he'd never seen before on the surface of the planet, who is for some reason a, a giant. He then reports that later when he came back to Earth, the flight was taking place uh, as part of a rescue operation for another pilot who'd gone missing. Uh, and Burton says later in his testimony that when he uh, returned to Earth, he actually saw this child uh, who was a person he'd never he'd never seen before, except in this kind of apparition on the surface of the planet. He saw this child who was actually the orphan of the missing pilot. So the planet has these very mysterious properties and they are discussed in the film, but they are really discussed in Lem's novel, which, as I said, is uh, very much 
you know, a serious science fiction novel and it isn't as kind of, um, you know, psychological as, uh, as Tarkovsky's film. So because it's interesting and also I think because it provides some kind of useful exposition for this discussion, I want to read a little bit. This is from the first chapter of the novel when uh, Chris has just arrived on the station. In an attempt to pull myself together, I took a chair over to the bookshelves and chose a book familiar to me, the second volume of the early monograph by Hughes and Engel, Historia Solaris. I rested the thick, solidly bound volume on my knees and began leafing through the pages. The discovery of Solaris dated from about 100 years before I was born. The planet orbits two suns, a red sun and a blue sun. For 45 years after its discovery, no spacecraft had visited Solaris. At that time, the Gamo Shapley theory that life was impossible on planets which are satellites of two solar bodies was firmly believed. The orbit is constantly being modified by variations in the gravitational pull in the course of its revolution around the two suns. Due to these fluctuations in gravity, the orbit is either flattened or distended and the elements of life, if they appear, are inevitably destroyed, either by intense heat or an extreme drop in temperature. These changes take place at intervals estimated in millions of years, very short intervals that is, according to the laws of astronomy and biology. According to the earliest calculations, Solaris would be drawn one half of an astronomic unit nearer to its red sun, and a million years after that would be engulfed by the incandescent star. A few decades later, however, observations seemed to suggest that the planet's orbit was in no way subject to the expected variations. It was stable, as stable as the orbit of the planets in our own solar system. The observations and calculations were reworked with great precision. They simply confirmed the original conclusions. Solaris's orbit was unstable. A modest item among the hundreds of planets discovered annually, Solaris eventually began to attract special attention and attain a high rank. For years after this promotion, overflying the planet with the Lacoon and two auxiliary craft, the Ottenschgold expedition undertook a study of Solaris. This expedition being in the nature of a preliminary, not to say improvised reconnaissance, the scientists were not equipped for a landing. Ottenschgold placed a quantity of automatic observation satellites into equatorial and polar orbit, their principal function being to measure the gravitational pull. As was foreseeable, no trace of life was discovered, either on the islands or in the ocean. During the following 10 years, Solaris became the center of attraction for all observatories concerned with the study of this region of space, for the planet had in the meantime shown the astonishing faculty of maintaining an orbit which ought, without any shadow of a doubt, to have been unstable. The problem also developed into a scandal. Since the results of the observations could only be inaccurate, attempts were made in the interests of science to denounce and discredit various scientists or else the computers they used. Lack of funds delayed the departure of a proper Solaris expedition for three years. Finally, Shanahan assembled his team and obtained three sea tonnage vessels from the Institute, the largest starships of the period. A year and a half before the arrival of the expedition, which left from the region of Alpha in Aquarius, a second exploration fleet acting in the name of the Institute placed an automatic satellite into orbit around Solaris. This satellite, after three successive reconstructions at roughly 10-year intervals, is still functioning today. The data it supplied confirmed beyond reasonable doubt the findings of the Ottenschgold expedition concerning the active character of the ocean's movements. One of Shanahan's ships remained in orbit, while the two others, after some preliminary attempts, landed in the southern hemisphere. The work of the expedition lasted 18 months and was carried out under favorable conditions, apart from an unfortunate accident brought about by the malfunction of some apparatus. In the meantime, the scientists had split into two opposing camps. The bone of contention was the ocean. 
On the basis of the analysis, it had been accepted that the ocean was an organic formation, but while the biologists considered it as a primitive formation, a sort of gigantic entity, a fluid cell, unique and monstrous, surrounding the globe with colloidal envelope several miles thick in places, the astronomers and physicists asserted that it must be an organic structure, extraordinarily evolved. According to them, the ocean possibly exceeded terrestrial organic structures in complexity, since it was capable of exerting an active influence on the planet's orbital path. Certainly no other factor could be found that might explain the behavior of Solaris. Moreover, the planetophysicists had established a relationship between certain processes of the plasmic ocean and the local measurements of gravitational pull, which altered according to the matter transformations of the ocean. Consequently, it was the physicists, rather than the biologists, who put forward the paradoxical formulation of a plasmic mechanism, implying by this a structure, possibly without life as we conceive it, but capable of performing functional activities on an astronomic scale it should be emphasized. There were some who continued to support the Gamow-Shapley contentions to the effect that the ocean had nothing to do with life, that it was neither a parabiological nor prebiological but a geological formation, with the unique ability to stabilize the orbit of Solaris despite the variations in the forces of attraction. To challenge this conservative attitude, new hypotheses were advanced, of which Civito Vitas was one of the most elaborate, proclaiming that the ocean was the product of a dialectical development. On the basis of its earliest pre-oceanic form, a solution of slow-reacting chemical elements, and by the force of circumstances, it had reached into a single bound the state of homeostatic ocean, without bypassing through all the stages of terrestrial evolution, bypassing the unicellular and multicellular phases, the vegetable and the animal, the development of a nervous and cerebral system. In other words, it had not taken hundreds of millions of years to adapt itself to the environment, culminating in the first representatives of a species endowed with reason but dominated its environment immediately. So this continues for a bit, as in the novel, you know, science proves increasingly unable to explain Solaris, you know, further discoveries are made, but they don't really seem to uh, offer any kind of adequate explanations for anything. There's a line somewhere in the book about how, you know, the more they solve the mysteries of Solaris, the more it became an enigma. Science, it seems, becomes inadequate and, and it becomes a question for philosophy instead. Lem writes, as often happened subsequently in the field of Solaris studies, that the explanation replaced one enigma with another, perhaps even more baffling. So Tarkovsky's film definitely kind of alludes to all of this. We see it in this early section of uh, exposition, but it's really not central to the film. And you can see how there's a really significant divergence between Lem's uh, sensibility and Tarkovsky's here, even though I would argue that in, in some ways... The themes of the film are, are very similar. The themes of the film uh, and the book, respectively, are actually somewhat similar, uh, but they just have very different points of emphasis. I think in the film, Tarkovsky, you know, doesn't expend any energy elaborating on what the planet is or what it might be or on humanity's various attempts to understand it. But I do think that in both, to some extent, I think it can be taken to represent what's kind of unknowable and, and inexplicable for human beings. And I think in uh, the film, Tarkovsky is more interested in kind of, as I said, the inner lives and thoughts of his characters. But, you know, this is still a science fiction film, and I think it can be interpreted in that way as well. So returning to the plot of the film, the lead character is named Chris Calvin. He's a widower. His wife, Harry, died 10 years ago of suicide. Their marriage was unhappy. It's only in the years after her death that he's come to realize that he loved her. The bulk of the film is spent with him on a voyage to this space station that's orbiting a planet called Solaris. Previously, strange and inexplicable sights were reported. 
he's on this voyage to determine if this basically half-abandoned station is worth continuing. When he arrives, things are not well. There are two surviving crew members. They behave very strangely. There was a third crew member who recently committed suicide. Strangest of all, the next morning he wakes up to find his wife, his dead wife, Hari, with him. Uh, He soon learns that it's not actually Hari. The planet created her out of his memories. That doesn't mean she's merely a hallucination. She thinks and feels, and as the film goes on, she develops an autonomy separate from Kelvin. At one point, Kelvin gets angry at her. He tells her she isn't real, and when she attempts suicide, she's almost instantly resurrected. It is possible, however, to destroy her. There is the technology on on board the ship to destroy one of these physical hallucinations. Well, and important to note as well that uh, the hallucinations seem to have intensified, or whatever you want to call them, these kind of manifestations of individuals who are known, and, and in some cases it seems also not known, to the cosmonauts on the station. This seems to have begun because they disobeyed orders and an attempt to communicate with the planet, which is their their mission to establish contact of some kind with this uh, this mystery. They've directed radiation at the surface. So it's unclear whether that's caused harm or not, or if it's in fact, uh, it has been received in some fashion as a message and the entities that appear are some kind of reply or something like that. Uh, that's not really clear in the film. But as you said, you know, it's also important to emphasize here, these aren't exactly, I mean, they're not ghostly apparitions. They are physically manifested. In fact, uh, the scientists on the station are able to measure them. Uh, They're able to determine that they're, you know, they're not made out of atoms, they're made out of neutrinos, but they are actually, you know, physically present. They're not mere hallucinations. And the two other scientists, Snout and Sartorius, who are on the station with Chris, are actually able to to speak to Harry. I also didn't mention that some of the early scenes take place on Kelvin's family home, which is a place that seems about as real or about as much of a dreamscape as anything else we see in the film. He's there with his father. Uh, He tells his father that he's going on this mission, and his father is skeptical that he's ever going to return from it. He burns a lot of his possessions there, and there's a sense that he's sort of washing his hands of the earth itself. Now, this film is something like 160 minutes, but not a great deal happens uh, in it. And I'm not saying that to denigrate the film. It is completely mesmerizing, and watching it is a very profound experience. But in terms of plot synopsis, you know, there's not a lot else to lay out here. When Harry first appears, Chris is uh, is startled and he panics and he leads her into a rocket, which he launches out into space. Of course, this doesn't do anything. Uh, she appears again. At one point, he leaves her in his, uh, his room and she panics and she tries to break out and she uh, seriously injures herself. But again, no real harm is done. You know, she reappears. One of the scientists, uh, Sartorius, who's kind of the more, I suppose, cold and empirically minded of the two, Snout, the other scientist, is much more sort of uh, abstract and philosophical and and temperamentally meek. Uh, But Sartorius wants to do experiments on Hari, and Chris won't let him. He senses very quickly that she is in many ways uh, an extension of him. Uh, He says, it would be like cutting off my own leg uh, if you were to do experiments on her. Now, Hari is played by uh, Natalia Bondarchuk, the daughter of the uh, Soviet director Sergei Bondarchuk and a, a great actress and also director in her own right. I think in many ways she is the breakout star of the film. She's the most memorable performance. I think she was only 19 at the time. 
The Lithuanian actor who plays Kelvin, whose name I would butcher if I tried to pronounce it, but there's nothing wrong with his performance, but I don't think we uh, learn a lot about the character. I think Tarkovsky instructed him really to play Chris in a way that's very flat. You know, we kind of get a sense of his moods and his states, but beyond that, everything we learn about him is really learned through Hari, because she's the manifestation of his innermost thoughts. And so in a sense, Natalia Bondarchuk is kind of playing two characters. And for that reason, I think she really carries the film. Now, through her and her interactions with Kelvin, we learned that their relationship was very fraught and very complicated. Kelvin had decided uh, he didn't love her, but he's since decided that, in fact, he did. In the end, uh, Hari disappears, but she leaves behind a, a note, a kind of cryptic note, which just informs Chris that she's actually instructed the scientists to use this technology that they've developed called the Annihilator, which is going to beam Chris's brainwaves onto the surface of Solaris and thus somehow destroy her. So her destruction happens at her own request. Now, there are a few other key scenes we need to discuss, but the film ends shortly after Hari's death. Somehow, the beaming of Kelvin's brainwaves onto the surface has made these entities stop appearing, but also has made islands start to form on the surface. Kelvin briefly debates whether he should return to Earth or remain on the station. And in the final scene, we initially see what, what looks like him returning to Earth. He appears to be a changed man. He's back at his family home. He approaches, uh, he approaches the home. His father is in there. Uh, there are some kind of strange and very dreamlike things happening. There's kind of water dripping down from everywhere. His father sees him uh, and they embrace. So he has a very different relationship with his father at the end of the movie uh, as compared to the beginning. And then as the film ends, the camera pans out and we see that all of this is actually taking place on one of the islands on Solaris. So this is a Tarkovsky film that could be interpreted in a number of different ways. Uh, does it mean that Chris, in fact, does decide to stay behind? Does it mean that he did return, but, you know, leave a piece of himself behind? which is kind of physically manifesting on the planet? Did he leave behind some more authentic part of his self and his identity? Uh, is the point that the planet has actually helped Chris uh, self-actualize in some way because we see him reconnecting with his, his father? I don't have an answer to those questions. I think the end of the film probably defies definitive interpretation, though I do have a few thoughts on what its thesis is, and, and we can talk about those in a moment. I think what's scary about the movie is it poses this idea that the relationships that we have are narcissistic. That could be with our friends, could be with the people we love, perhaps it could even be with our own surroundings. I mean, in the end, it's a little ambiguous where he even is. And we're not even sure it really matters where he is. Earlier, when he says that he didn't love Hari when she was alive, but he loves her now, it's a very ambiguous statement. You don't know who he really loves. Does he love her? Does he love the memory of her? Does he love the version of her that he's created in his mind? Or is it in fact the case that there's no uh, meaningful distinction to be made between any of those things? And to what extent is love just a choice that we make? based on the way that we choose to perceive the person in front of us. It's a beautiful movie in a lot of ways. It's 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 a moving movie in a lot of ways. It's it's a scary movie too because all of reality seems suspect after you watch it. A bit of dialogue that I wanted to bring up is when Dr. Snout, who's one of the scientists on the station, he has a monologue where he says, "I must tell you that we really have no desire to conquer any cosmos." We want to extend the Earth up to its borders. We don't know what to do with other worlds. We don't need other worlds. We need a mirror. 
We struggle to make contact, but will never achieve it. We are in a ridiculous predicament of man pursuing a goal that he fears and that he really does not need. Man needs man. I suppose to some extent that monologue speaks for itself, but I'm curious if if it stirred anything in you. Yeah, well, so interestingly, I mean, this scene that takes place in the library uh, where they have this, it's very bizarre scene. They have this, what's supposed to be a birthday party for Snout. It's kind of very strange uh, birthday party where, you know, they're joined by this entity, this apparition. And I guess for that reason, everyone's feeling very philosophical. But this monologue from Dr. Snout is actually very similar to the one in the novel. In the novel, Snout says, We don't want to conquer the cosmos. We simply want to extend the boundaries of Earth to the frontiers of the cosmos. For us, such and such a planet is as arid as the Sahara. Another is frozen as the North Pole. Yet another is lush as the Amazon Basin. We are humanitarian and chivalrous. We don't want to enslave other races. We simply want to bequeath them our values and take over the heritage in exchange. We think of ourselves as the knights of the holy contact. This is another lie. We are only seeking man. We have no need of other worlds. We need mirrors. We don't know what to do with other worlds. A single world our own suffices us, but we can't accept it for what it is. We are searching for an ideal image of our own world. We go in quest of a planet, of a civilization superior to our own, but developed on the basis of a prototype of our prime evil past. At the same time, there is something inside us which we don't like to face up to, from which we try to protect ourselves, but which nevertheless remains, since we don't leave Earth in a state of primal innocence. Now, I think both in the film and in the book, Snout's monologue can be read as a sort of critique of science, at least of a sort, as a kind of skeptical statement about what the enterprise of discovery can ultimately yield, what kind of meaning and what kind of truth it's ultimately capable of revealing to us. That comes through in the monologue I just read. I also think it comes through in the film because, of course, this is a film where the main character travels to a distant space station. What he finds there is really just a deeper part of himself. I think in Solaris, you don't find that the human condition is transcended in space. Uh, What you find instead is that it's clarified and in many ways heightened. I think for Tarkovsky especially, science, if anything, only mystifies things further because even as discoveries are made about this planet, uh, they don't offer any real explanations or deeper insights about the things that human beings spend much of their lives thinking about. Love being one of those things, truth being another, death and mortality being another, but also nature itself. And this is where I think that the film actually in some ways does have themes that are more familiar in science fiction. One of my takeaways from Snout's monologue and also from conversations that Kelvin has with Snout, which is that science, I think paradoxically, has in some ways remystified the world. Uh, There's an exchange between Kelvin and Snout where Kelvin asks, why are we being tortured like this? And Snout says, in my opinion, we have lost our sense of the cosmic. The ancients understood it perfectly. They never would have asked why or what for. Remember the myth of Sisyphus? Chris later says, to ask is always to desire to know, yet the preservation of simple human truths requires mystery. The film is absolutely full of uh, somewhat cryptic statements like this, which only lends further to its dreamlike quality. But I think if there's a thesis here, that really is it. Tarkovsky doesn't feel that science can help us transcend the human condition. Later, I think he voices this uh, through Chris, who says, suffering makes life seem dismal and suspicious, but I won't accept that. 
is that which is indispensable to life also harmful to it? No, it's not harmful. Of course it's not harmful. There are so few of us, a billion altogether, a handful. Maybe we're here in order to experience people as a reason for love. Now, I think it's notable here that uh, when we see Chris in the early shots of the film, when he's back on Earth and he's kind of, you know, there's one shot where he's just sort of standing in a meadow surrounded by flowers. He does seem a bit more at peace and all of the shots themselves uh, seem at peace. So this, the film's message isn't a purely negative one. Tarkovsky, I think, sees a deep harmony in nature, even if he finds it in many ways unknowable. And I think that's a thesis of the film as well. There's one other thing I want to talk about, which is this uh, this painting that appears a number of times in the film. It's in, in the library scene uh, where they have this bizarre birthday party for Dr. Snout. Uh, we also find uh, Hari looking at it later, and Tarkovsky shows us a number of close-ups of it as well. as a painting by a 16th century Dutch painter, Pieter Bruegel the Elder. It's called The Hunters in the Snow. Uh, it's a beautiful painting and it depicts this kind of pastoral scene where there's a small village kind of situated deeply in a, in a rural setting. There are some frozen lakes where people seem to be skating. But then in the foreground of the painting, there are a few hunters and some dogs uh, returning from a hunting expedition and they're all looking quite forlorn. The expedition clearly hasn't been a success. There's one kind of rather sad fox or something that one of them has, uh, which seems to be the only thing that they caught. Now, because Tarkovsky dwells on this painting so much in the film, I think we are obligated to try and interpret it. Now, it could mean many things, but since in some ways I think the film is, is a film about nature and kind of the fundamentally unknowable character of nature and of the universe, I think the nature that surrounds the characters and the village in the painting is an analog for those things. And I think perhaps we can read the forlorn looks of the hunters as symbolic of what Tarkovsky feels is the ultimately, at least mostly fruitless quest to find meaning through science or to find deeper human truths about the human condition out there in the universe. It's very notable in the painting that those in the background, uh, the villagers, all seem very happy and untroubled. There's a, a line that uh, again appears in this library scene, this very philosophical scene where Dr. Sartorius says, man was created by nature in order to explore it. In his endless search for truth, man is condemned to knowledge. Everything else is a whim. Elsewhere in the film, I don't have this in front of me. Someone says something to the effect of, in fact, I think it's Kelvin, the main character, says something to the effect of, you know, we are only unhappy when we're thinking about these things. You know, to not think about them is is often to be happy. And so, you know, it's, it's ambiguous, just like everything else in the film. But I read all of this as Turk Tarkovsky suggesting that there's something ultimately futile about the human condition, that we're doomed to ask these questions and never have them answered, but paradoxically that very thing is what makes us human. We're the hunters in the snow is the, is the point I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Solaris, I, I, for reasons which I suspect uh, mostly probably have to do with the Cold War, has often been called the, the Soviet 2001. I'm curious what you think about that, but I'm also curious if you've seen this interview that Tarkovsky gave where he actually uh, expresses his profound dislike for uh, Kubrick's masterpiece. Well, I did see that interview today when I was reading about the movie on that boon for the scholar Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> Tarkovsky said it was phony on many points and a lifeless schema with only pretensions to truth. And I mean, I can understand the comparison to 2001 A Space Odyssey in that both are... They came out around the same time and they're both in space, folks. Yeah, they, and, and they're, both, they're both slow and they announce themselves as serious movies. 
I think there are a lot of very obvious differences as well. I mean, Kubrick was obsessed with getting all of the details of space travel as correct as could be, really immersed himself in the mechanics of space travel. Tarkovsky's obviously not interested in that. He's interested in space as a sort of non-literal space. So I can see why Tarkovsky regarded Kubrick's film as a lifeless schema in comparison. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't agree with that as a statement about 2001, but I do find it a very useful statement about uh, Tarkovsky's intentions for his own film. And this is one of the things I really value about him is he really does have a very deep and thick perspective on his craft. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why Tarkovsky only made, uh, I think it's seven feature films throughout his career. I mean, he really had a very deep and quite unwavering perspective on his craft and on the things that could be conveyed through it. And I think you can see in his response to Kubrick's film and also in his interpretation of Lem's novel that he's really not interested in a lot of this kind of uh, futurist stuff around, you know, technology and things like that. He says that in his own foray into science fiction, quote, everything would be as it should. That means to create psychologically, not an exotic, but a real everyday environment that would be conveyed to the viewer through the perception of the film's characters. That's why a detailed examination, in, in scare quotes, of the technological processes of the future transforms the emotional foundation of a film as a work of art into a lifeless schema with only pretensions to truth. Some of the temperamental and philosophical differences between the two filmmakers are clear in that monologue by Snout, where he says, we don't want to extend the earth up to its borders. We don't know what to do with other worlds. We don't need other worlds. We need a mirror. I think Kubrick very earnestly does want to explore other worlds. He wants to extend the reach of mankind, whereas the way that reality is presented as this very uh, slippery and unknowable subjective thing in this movie, I, I don't think Tarkovsky thinks we're capable of finding new worlds. The last time we talked about Tarkovsky on this podcast, we were talking about his status as a Soviet filmmaker. I wouldn't say we had disagreement exactly, but you were very keen to position him as a Russian filmmaker, you know, somebody whose work was attuned to a certain Russian identity. And I think, whether consciously or not, I was trying to divorce him from the Soviet Union. I trust you've read Tarkovsky's diaries. Uh, something that's interesting in those is how frustrated he is throughout. I mean, one of the reasons why he made only seven movies is each movie was a struggle to get made. Each movie was a struggle to get past the censors. He was certainly the most internationally acclaimed Russian filmmaker of the time. And much like how, you know, most of the great Chinese filmmakers of the 1980s, you know, the fifth generation Chinese filmmakers who were uh, making such a splash on the festival circuit, they weren't necessarily the favorite filmmakers of the government. Now, I mentioned I was researching this movie on, again, that boon to the scholar Wikipedia, <laughs> and it mentions that in January 1972, uh, shortly after production was completed on the film, the State Committee for Cinematography requested editorial changes before releasing Solaris. This included a more realistic film with a clearer image of the future and deletion of allusions to God and Christianity. Tarkovsky successfully resisted such major changes, and after a few minor edits, Solaris was approved for release in March 1972. I don't necessarily have a point with this, except to say uh, I would love to see the version of Solaris that had a, a clearer image of the future. <laughs> well, maybe we should watch the Steven Soderbergh one and see if it offers that. I'd like to see the Steven Spielberg one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the age of reboots, so I guess we can look forward to that next Oscar season. 